Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today we're going to be talking about creationism, specifically young earth creationism, versus a secular theory of evolution. We are going to reject both of these and instead thread a middle position. Well, actually, kind of a neither position, if anything. Now, the fifth way episode that we had with uh, Dr. Delfino got me thinking about intelligent design arguments. Of course, the fifth way is not an intelligent design argument per se, though it's commonly thought to be one. As we talked with Dr. Delfino, he was not arguing from complexity, but rather he made his case from something very simple, his example being an electron. As he laid out, biological evolution, or the lack thereof, has nothing to do with the fifth way of Thomas Aquinas, since he can proceed from even electrons that preceded evolution. Now, I've said before that in the past, I was a Protestant Christian, and I grew up learning about young earth creationism. In fact, in elementary school, we were taught this. I went to a Christian elementary school. Now, I remember being in third grade and hearing the argument, and we read about the Big Bang Theory. I was a little skeptical of creationism at that time. I really liked this Big Bang Theory, the tiny blurb that we were given, and I thought it sounded very much consistent with what I read in Scripture, that all of a sudden things came to be because God caused being to come out of non-being. But by high school, I had pretty much adopted this as the only way I knew how to defend my faith. And I would meet with a friend of mine, Calvin, who was an atheist, and we would discuss back and forth how exactly did things come to be, whether there was a God or not. So we traded some books back and forth, and one book that I got to read was called The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins, which at least if you're about my age, was a classic for high schoolers who were wondering whether or not they should be theists or atheists. Now, some of the books from Dawkins um, are, uh, well, they're good at some things. They're certainly not good at philosophy. There's pretty embarrassing philosophy in there. And the way that he strawmans uh, Thomas Aquinas' arguments, I don't even get mad. They're just they're just kind of comically bad. But what he does do well is he presents evolution in a clear, compelling, and very interesting way. In fact, it was that book that got me to start studying biology once I got to college. I really liked evolution, all the puzzles which this entailed. Very interesting to me. And I'd like to thank good old Richard Dawkins for uh, getting me interested in biology. And, well, eventually into philosophy through no fault of his own. Now, I say this is a bit of a cautionary tale. Uh, high schoolers and younger read Shakespeare and are painstakingly taught to understand it. They learn high-level math, occasionally reaching to calculus by, by high school. They'll do layers of practice and study, and they have to learn concept after concept in order to finally grasp these very difficult subjects. But philosophy? No. I, like pretty much everybody else, got a dumbed-down version. I never got the real arguments for God's existence. I was left with this to defend my faith. And while it didn't work, by college, I had lost the faith. I wouldn't necessarily say I was an atheist, but I was very iffy about the God hypothesis. I was never given a good reason. 
So I think if you have any high schoolers or at this point middle schoolers in your life, you should sit them down and try to spark an interest in philosophy. Uh, kids aren't that dumb. They can learn very complicated things. It just takes a step-by-step -step approach, and we need to do that with uh, with proofs of God, may I suggest? The fourth way. <laughs> now, this is also a talking point of Bishop Barron, if you've listened to some of his content, that we teach religion at a child's level. And then when kids grow up, they criticize religion with an adult's mind. Now, I can't really find much fault with the adults that were in my life. Uh, they didn't know any philosophy either. <laughs> so first, it's incumbent on us adults to learn it so that the next generation can understand it because we are one generation from entirely losing the faith. If one generation doesn't hand it on, there it goes. Everybody else kept up their part of the bargain. We should too. But I'm digressing as per the usual. Um, the takeaway, of course, is we should hold up philosophy and theology as a challenge. We as adults need to take the time to learn these things so we can pass it down, and we should seek to, I think, at least master one argument for theism, one argument for Christianity, and one argument for the Catholic Church. I, of course, as you guys know, like the fourth way of Aquinas, and I have two more episodes <laughs> maybe coming up on that same subject, each radically different from the other. I like the the apologetics surrounding the resurrection, and as far as uh, Catholic distinctives, I really like arguments about the Eucharist and papal, uh, papal authority, so I think those are great. In the words of Bruce Lee, I don't fear the man who has practiced a thousand uh, kicks one time, but rather the man who has practiced one kick a thousand times. So, master some of these arguments, just one of each to start and go deep. All right, so let's begin by steel-manning the, uh, the young earth creation aside. Let's, uh, let, let's have them in the driver's seat for a little bit be before we switch up. All right, speaking as the young earth creationist a bit, not that I am one, but speaking as one, the, secular, the secularist would have you believe a few critical errors. One, that evolution is a process that moved the simple to the complex, and for that matter, non-life to life. Also, that the universe is old, very old. And finally, that the secular scientific view is indeed compatible with scripture and the church fathers, for that matter. But here's the problem. Evolution is wrong. Here's a couple arguments. Guys, we'll start with the, the weak ones, but the common ones to get them out of the way, and we'll roll along to what I think are their stronger arguments. Here's the first one. Evolution is not a subject properly of science because it's a historical claim, not a scientific claim. Now, there's not much more to this argument than that. I think it's manifestly false. First, all observations that have been done scientifically are definitionally in the past, and if that excludes it from being science, then I guess this excludes all of science. And further, there are plenty of sciences which study what happened in the past. Uh, geology is a science. Astronomy is a science. All of these are sciences, and yet we trace from what we know today back to what we know in the past. There's nothing wrong with that. In order to be a science, we would need the scientific method to do empirical research. And this is an object of empirical research. Therefore, these are scientific topics. Next, evolution is only a theory. Well, 
yeah, it's a theory, but uh, a quantum theory is a theory, and yet we have things which run on quantum principles. Uh, relativity is a theory, and yet we can watch the dilation of clocks as they move at different relative velocities. Uh, gravity is a theory, and yet that helps us understand a wide variety of things and say, planetary motion. So theory is actually a very high level in science. No, it's not the level of a law. A law is something which could be, I would say, proved with absolute certainty, like mathematically, for instance, or just drops directly out of logic. No, it's not at that level because it's just part of empirical research, but it's very certain, and we have a variety of converging uh, pieces of evidence. On to the, uh, the more serious objections. All right. So-called evolutionary experiments have showed only devolution, not evolution, a reduction, not an increase in information. The propagandized layman might point to the breeding of dogs as an example of evolution. We use directed evolution from a wolf, and we get a Pomeranian. Why, imagine if this continued for a million years, what would we get past the Pomeranian? Anyone who knows anything about this from a genetic standpoint knows that Pomeranians can never be bred back into wolves. Why? Because this type of breeding eliminates information. It combines pre-existing genes, and then it simply sorts them into different breeds. No scientist would say that new information has been made here. Genetic diversity decreased. It didn't increase. Scientists point towards similar natural examples like finches, Darwin's finches, and imagine that this is an increase in diversity, a blossoming of life. But out of the other side of their mouth, they decry population bottlenecks of species that are the prerequisite for this type of differentiation, I may add. You see, in a bottleneck, there is inbreeding, and in the inbreeding, this sorts genes instead of scrambling them. It allows for states to, to for uh, traits to stack up in potentially advantageous ways, sure, but at great cost, at the cost of fragility. A finch could hit a population bottleneck, inbreed, and sort genes out such that seemingly novel traits are exposed. But this destruction of genetic diversity would make these breeds of a species susceptible to environmental shocks. They have simply uh, ran out of genetic bullets at this point. They have spent their genetic diversity in order to adapt. And that is the dirty little secret that evolutionists don't want you to know. Evolution is a reduction of information, the sorting of pre-existing traits, the trading of genetic diversity for specialization and subsequent fragility. Now, this type of microevolution indeed is possible, prevalent, and is perennially used by intelligent agents like people to bring about change. But macroevolution, well, that's not the same. It's of another kind altogether. It's not microevolution but stretched out. It's reversed. It claims to create the genetic diversity, to add information to the genome. And what a bold scientific claim that is. Can they substantiate it? Well, no. To obscure this reality, they rely on cheap tricks. Dawkins and others quote 
demonstrate evolution by randomly having a word evolve on, on stage at one of their talks, showing letters lock into place as they randomly cycle through variations. Did you hear me? Lock into place? These so-called scientists reliably make the huge mistake of thinking that random mutations only happen in those letters that aren't yet right. The ones that are correct get to be locked in and magically immune from the randomized mutations. Here's a bit of a rebuttal. Uh, the words on stage aren't the only thing which, quote, evolves. Uh, Dawkins gives a very helpful analogy, talking about a spray nozzle. I believe it was Unilever who was making a spray nozzle in order to uh, generate uh, powdered soap. So they take the liquid soap, they spray it into a giant room, and this is actually pretty difficult to get uniformity, to get it to cover the room in the correct way, to get it to dry in time, to create the particles that they want in the way that they want. It's very difficult. It's an engineering project that they found to be too difficult to do just from scratch. Instead, they took a nozzle that was, you know, close, and they tried it. And then they had a computer program that would randomly change it, about 10% or so, in each of these uh, little areas of the nozzle. And then they would get, I think it was seven different variations, test them, and then they would choose the one which was the best out of the seven. That one is the one that survived or outcompeted the others. Then they would have it randomly changed by so many percents again. They would get seven more, and then they would test that and see which one was the fittest. And they kept doing that until they had something which, I've seen a picture of it, looks pretty crazy. And we don't actually know how it works. All we know is that it works incredibly well, and that's how they made it. Note, they didn't just lock things in. They allowed the entire thing to vary. So this is an example of evolution which is not subject to the earlier critique. Also, some of these word and phrase examples do allow for mutation here. Now, it's true that it doesn't lock into one phrase or, or, or an, another in the way that, that was earlier laid out um, because it's the, quote, right one, but instead this is used as a analog for that which survives best. So to have it, quote, lock in, or maybe a better way to put it is, be the phrase fragment that survives to the next iteration. Well, I think that's actually that's actually fair. That would fit. Now, if the the argument is that we can't lock in the the letters which are correct from the onset, well, then with that, I agree. So, other things that the creationist is correct about is that uh, you're right that uh, evolution typically. Um, uh, is a, quote, devolution, right? These mutations are generally not good. Um, however, it does happen. There is information that is added on occasion. Um, for instance, uh, there are mutations that inc can increase the number of chromosomes. If you've met somebody with Down syndrome, then you know somebody who has more chromosomes than you. And further, studies of viruses show that viral DNA can promote evolution. In fact, 8% of your DNA is from viruses that you've had in the past or your ancestors have had in the past. Did you ever contract COVID or get the vaccine? Because if so, RNA reverse transcriptase may have already turned some of that RNA back 
transcribed it, right, reverse transcriptase, transcribed it back into DNA and had it enter your nucleus. And don't freak out because that kind of happens all the time, especially with this class of virus. You almost certainly have uh, turned off flu DNA in you already. You know it's turned off because right now you don't have flu symptoms. Well, I hope not. If you do, get better soon. Further, it seems that viruses can transfer DNA from one organism to another, meaning new and functioning information is added at times. So here's my bottom line. Biologists who propose evolution as an explanation for our present life forms should not be so smug. Science does not yet offer adequate explanations for the increase in functional genetic information. Typical mutations, including uh, substitution, deletion, insertion, and point mutation, are indeed almost always destructive. And I think that the most promising work comes from two areas of research. One, epigenetics. This is the hot new field right now in biology, and it really should be. If strong feedback mechanisms can be found that coordinate environment as experienced by the parent to the organism in its germline genetics, then this does a lot to point to answers. Epigenetic um, examples for you would be, uh, a, there was a scientific uh, test where they shocked uh, a mouse every time, I guess it hit a red button or something. Now, when they separated the uh, the uh, little baby mice from those mice, they found that they were also scared of the color red. In fact, this persisted all the way down to the grand mice, who, having ne never met their parents and never met their grandparents, were still afraid of the color red because the grandparent mouse was shocked whenever it saw the color red or whatever terrible thing they did to this little fluffy creature. Um, another example is it was observed that people whose ancestors were in famines have metabolic changes which are different from similar populations. There was the, oh, I think, uh, siege of Leningrad. And when we looked at people whose grandparents were there who were starving for a long time, they had heritable genetic changes. So epigenetics, we don't understand it yet, not fully, um, but it's very promising, and I think this does point towards some solutions, which are, uh, which are needed because there are real problems in our lack of understanding of evolution. Now, the second thing, which I think is uh, quite promising, is what I talked about earlier, this idea of viral transfer. There is an identical uh, code in DNA for an antifreeze gene in the blood of two very distinct fish that diverged 250 million years ago. And there's actually some good scientific evidence that the way that the one fish species got this antifreeze gene in their blood so they can be in very cold areas without freezing could be due to a virus that infected the first species, clipped that section out, and then it got incorporated and turned on in the second fish. Scientists have also suggested that this could be a reason for bioluminescence in a variety of different species. It could have been a viral transfer. So the creationist points out that how do we get new information added to the genome? It don't seem to have this simply from these, uh, uh, these types of mutations. And I think that could be in large part true. 
But there are other mechanisms also, epigenetic changes and viral transfer, that I think do at least point to uh, a couple ways where we could add information to the genome. And in not a devolution way, but in a true evolution way. Because those fish, they would have been frozen otherwise. So evolutionists, you are right that evolution happened. But, at least until we get a lot more information in, you're wrong about how. Creationists, you're wrong that it didn't happen. But you are right that at least... As of now, the evolutionist story can't show how. All right, back to the creationists. <clears throat> My creationist uh, hat, back on, guys. I know you can't see me, but it's on. Even if I accept that these means of including additional DNA information are possible, the number of ways that a mutation or a duplication or anything else can harm the organism are greatly higher than those that can help it. And this drops straight out of our knowledge of entropy. Would you deny that a squirrel is at a lower entropy state than an equal quantity of alike atoms? Obviously, there are more wrong ways to assemble a squirrel than right ways. Yet your claim is that entropy is commonly reversed when atoms become squirrels. That squirrel DNA which is at a very low entropy state, can be raised in complexity through random mutation. If it is random, then the change is agnostic to the outcome. If it's agnostic to the outcome, then given the vastly larger number of ways that squirrel DNA can go wrong than right, then we ought to expect that mutations of any type, in balance, will be deleterious. And that is what we see in actual observation. Now, listeners, this line of reasoning, I think, is one of the strongest that the creationist has. In fact, I do think it's true that an atheistic evolution theory that raises beings to higher levels of actuality, complexity, and fittingness to nature is virtually impossible without some type of intelligent direction somewhere. Though, to soften this point, I do want to point out that Evolution does not aim at a squirrel. It aims at nothing in particular. If it is said to aim, it simply aims at survival and reproduction. It's true, there are very few ways to make a squirrel, but there are numerous ways to create a being that reproduces. And this is all that evolution, quote, wants, to use excessively teleological language. The big problem is that creationists are commonly assuming the same secular metaphysics as their interlocutors and have no concept of intelligent direction other than extrinsic final causality. We as Catholics accept that there is intrinsic final causality, listen to the Fifth Way episode, that God makes natures and the natures move to their ends as sent by God. All right, example time. Let's say Lockheed Martin makes a new smart bomb. What makes it uh, reach its end by blowing up a target? Well, smart bombs are just the kind of things that direct themselves towards targets. That's what makes them smart. So there's an inbuilt nature that explains it's reaching the end, the target. Now, the proverbial creationist might point to the unlikeliness of a bomb hitting such a small target. It seems that there are uh, seemingly random movements of the, of the bomb's uh, uh, fins 
Why, the creationist exclaims, the random movements of the fins will be on average deleterious. They won't hit the target. But uh, if these would, by randomly moving, make it less likely to hit the target than, than more, and yet it does hit the target and with reliability, why, there must be a remote pilot actively steering the fins. We must have this intelligent extrinsic direction of it, right? Can't be random, must be extrinsic direction. Now, the evolutionist might say, look at all the other bombs that hit targets. The movement of the fins somehow, through random changes, cause it to strike the target. Exactly how, I guess we don't know. But the fact is, we have a long history of seeing these bombs somehow strike the target. We will figure it out one day. Or, bear with me on this one, the bomb doesn't have direction imposed from outside of itself. And it's not random either. It's a smart bomb. It has it according to its nature, an intrinsic power of direction. It can track and reach its end because of what it is. Does this mean that we don't need God? Well, actually, it's quite the opposite, and here's why. The existence of the self-directing nature must be explained, as it is not necessary through itself. The nature does not explain its own existence, just its own self-direction in this limited way. In order to have anything with these self-directed natures, there must exist a nature that does contain the reason for its own existence, and then causes all natures to actually exist. And once it pairs these uh, natures with existence, um, well, then they can do their thing. And this, of course, is God. Therefore, we would say that the existence of these natures that move towards an end is evidence of God, who imbues creation with an inbuilt final causality such that it can reach a given end. You see, we deny reductionism and materialism, and for those reasons, we deny creationism too. The right answer is to extend our understanding of reality, not to truncate it with a god of the gaps or to deny it with a myriological nihilism like the creationist or the secular evolutionists do, um, respectively. So I will point out on the subject of entropy that it's not as simple as many creationists point out. Nature commonly reduces entropy, but critically the total amount of entropy in the system is not decreased. And this is a critical port point indeed. Even a creationist ought to accept that a naturally occurring block of pyrite, or fool's gold, if you will, that forms molecularly perfect squares is indeed forming a very low entropy state. Yet, it's indeed possible we see them. Crystals of many types assemble in predictable and low-entropy ways without the need for conscious fiddling by an external cause. Would the creationists say that that was impossible? There are clearly more ways for the pyrite to not be a perfect square than to be one. Now, again, as Catholics, we have answers to this. We have the metaphysics to deal with such questions. We can point to the fact that the crystal indeed has an immaterial form. We can lean on good old Uncle Aristotle for this explanation. It has a nature and it points to an end. It has inbuilt potentials for becoming a crystal and then these are actualized. So this eventually terminates in God directing all things as per the fifth way reasoning. 
let's get on to irreducible complexity. So we've covered these genetic changes. We've talked a little bit about the argument from entropy. So I'm sure you've heard of irreducible complexity. Uh, this gets batted about in creationist circles a lot. And let's give a few examples that they commonly lean on. Let's say you have something very simple, far more simple than any uh, any animal, uh, any any plant. We, we have a mousetrap. Let's say this is our creature. Well, without the spring and the block and the little mouse-killing part, without all those pieces in their proper place, it can't kill a mouse. So if we just remove one of these, well, what's the use of it? Well, nothing. So if we have many states, let's say there's uh, five parts, there is no reason, there's no additional benefit to move from uh, part one to also having part two to also having part three to also having part four and then to have part five because it's only at part five, and this is very few parts I may add, that it will actually serve its purpose. So there's nothing that leads it from the simple to the complex because there's this gap that does not determine its outcome to the fifth step. Therefore, it's irreducible complex. There's no reason to move out to this last thing. It would have to be directed to it. Another example is the eye. Numerous parts have to be in place, and none of them have a good use until they reach this form of being an eye, and then they can see. The bacterial flagellum, right? All these little parts have to be in place all at the same time in order to do the function. Yet evolution claims that they don't get in place at the same time, but step by step. There's no logical step by step progression because we have to be at the end to do the thing. Well, again, good old Dawkins gives an example of something that would seem irreducibly complex. So he says that, uh, that a stone arch is created one block at a time. But using the logic that we were laying out earlier, that's clearly impossible because an arch is only held up when everything is in place. What he points out is that you might not know the whole story. You're just looking at this uh, supposed beginning and then the observed end. What if, like in the case of the arch, there's some type of scaffolding, whereby, yeah, you can indeed lay an arch one block at a time, and yet it's also true that once the scaffolding's removed, um, it's held up because it's there all at once. If you removed a block, it'd fall apart. So is there a type of scaffolding that we don't see today that was there before, which allowed this progression? Well, I think the best answer for that is uh, we probably don't know. So to say that it's impossible, well, we probably don't know. Um, we may have lost those intermediate forms. Another explanation to kind of explain this stuff is that the bacterial flagellum, for example, seems to have indeed had intermediate uses. Now, this one's debated, so I'll kind of give both parts here, though I'm not an expert on this particularly. It seems an intermediate stage was that instead of being a flagellum, it was an injection device of some sort, which relies on fewer parts. Now, some creationists seem to say that, uh, Actually, that's an example of devolution, and we don't find that earlier state there. We only see uh, bacteria having this simpler thing because they lost abilities from the flagellum. I don't know. Maybe that's true. 
I think in general, we ought to treat these irreducible complex parts as, um, as cool puzzles because they are an argument from ignorance. It's hard to prove negative that they could not have evolved. I'd prefer to say that we just don't know or that it seems unlikely without intelligent guidance. You know, without the intelligence guidance that, say, Aquinas talks about in his treatment of angels that we've talked about in earlier episodes. Or at least, with it'd be very unlikely without the concept of form, without the idea of an intrinsic, uh, intrinsic causality that we've talked about also in other episodes. So these interesting puzzles, but I don't think impossible. Oh, I also mentioned the eye. We do have light-sensitive spots even in plants. So, although you don't have perfect vision, you don't need perfect vision to have uh, some amount of uh, benefit from a proto-eye, um, I do think that there's actually a progression that can make sense. So, cool puzzles, yes. Definitive arguments, no. Argument from ignorance, yes. Are those definitive? No. So, cool puzzles, but uh, yeah, we're going to have to continue our search for a real good knockdown argument. First, let's, uh, let's deal with something which I think is kind of going on in the background. And that's a word about evolution, uh, good and evil. Now, especially my, my Protestant friends who are uh, creationists, they kind of see a line of good and evil drawn. So there are staunch evolutionists who are commonly also atheists. Uh, they've historically supported some pretty terrible things like eugenics programs. Often, it seems like these evolutionists are the bad guys. And yeah, maybe they are. But let me suggest to you um, that there might be a reason why it seems like there's a good and evil here. In an earlier episode on 11 reasons why Lucifer may be the angelic governor of angels and possibly nature, um, I offered a variety of reasons why it could be that after the fall, we have an evil governor of, uh, of nature. And here's a 12th reason that I totally should have added. Satan is called in scripture, the prince of this world. And even in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he's called the God of this world or the God of this age, depending on what translation is correct. And angels are intelligent forces that most directly and locally are responsible for the governance of nature. Well, God is pairing essence with existence and creating natures and being the source of all actuality, goodness, and stuff like that. So what the evolutionist elevates is that force that's guiding nature most directly. So yes, they're calling Satan the creator. They're quite directly at least if we're right about our theory of Lucifer being the angelic governor of nature, or at least animals, they're quite directly putting Satan in the place of God. And yes, that's very bad. And that should fit with your intuitions that this focus on evolution as being the total explanatory factor for the creation of life is false. Yeah, yeah. In sense, that's false. And it's something satanic or evil about it. Yeah, that's true too. What's that, creationists? You think that I'm going to let you off the hook and just bust on atheistic evolutionists? Oh, no. Oh, no. You have done something almost as bad. You have lowered God to the level of an angel. And not any angel, but Satan. 
You have called the direct governance of the natural world God's direct work through extrinsic causality, not by affirming God's action as the cause of nature's. So the atheistic evolutionist calls Satan their God, and the creationist refers to the work of Satan as the work of God. May I suggest that both of these are truly egregious errors? So here are some examples of good natures, because they're created by God, and very poor governance, because, well, as Scripture says, Satan is the god of this world. Dolphins. Aren't dolphins great? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are. Wonderful by nature, indeed. Wonderfully fitted to their environment. Yes, so many good things about dolphins. Yeah, they do some pretty evil things, too. They um, they do some unnatural things to porpoises because there's many of them and they can bully them. And, uh, yeah, some pretty gross stuff they do to porpoises. They know they can't reproduce with them, and that's one of the reasons why they abuse porpoises. Uh, monkeys. Monkeys are fun. We like monkeys. What amazing creatures. They're so smart. They swing from trees. All sorts of great stuff. But... Well, I'll give you one example. And um, uh, some scientists gave them uh, gave them uh, these little like cards, and the cards could be turned in for juice treats. So the cards quickly became their form of money, a money backed by juice, which I think is an interesting one. So they used this money in order to have a little proto economy. Would you like to guess the first thing they exchanged their cards for? The very first thing that came about. Yeah, prostitution. So the uh, female monkeys would uh, demand these cards for juice treats in order to have sex with the male monkeys. And then they had non-payment. This was a problem. So they began to split some of their juice treat money with other male monkeys to enforce payment. So the monkeys, as soon as they had these cards, they created prostitution and pimps. So monkeys wonderful by nature, amazing creatures. God came up with monkeys. Yes, he did. But the governance of them, the the action of them, oh my goodness, is terrible. Uh, alligators and crabs, amazing. And they also eat their own babies. Uh, lions, they kill the cubs of other males. They, they, they rip off genitalia from other lions. All this is really screwed up. Like, you just have to look at nature and animals. It's, it's gone mad. This is not okay. Scripture says that in the end, the lion will lay down with the lamb, and that children will play over the adder's den. Nature will one day be redeemed, because it obviously needs to be redeemed. So all those creatures are good, beautiful, given their natures by God. But, oh, but tell me, does their action sound like something God would want or something that Satan would want? So let's not confuse the work of God with the work of the devil. All righty. So now we know just how serious this is. There's a, there is a third way. So we so we have these substitutions of, of God's work and, and Satan's work, this putting Satan in the place of God. We also have the pagan option, whereby they worship the gods of this world. The Apostle Paul tells us that they were thereby worshiping demons. And we now have three ways to screw this whole thing up. Deny the spiritual order in nature, worship it, and reduce God down to it. Those are your three bad options. And all of this is wrong. We need to put God in his proper place, and then everything else falls into line, both scientifically and theologically.
In the creationist world, they point to the scripture verses. When God created kinds, and they read this as if it supports God creating a few original animals and plants and whatnot, and then these differentiate into different forms of life we have today. For instance, God may create a progenitor of the canine family, which then differentiates into uh, wolves and dingoes and other things in the canine family. Uh, likewise, he did this with felines, so it, an original proto-cat, and this continues. Or, if your metaphysics isn't impoverished, what might be a synonym for the word kind or bara in Hebrew? Well, look it up. When the word kind is used in scripture, it relates to a type, a sort. It can imply being cut out of, like a cookie cutter it cuts out a shape of a cookie. Or a form lays the edges of existence, if you want to think to mystically. Yes, kind looks a lot more like the word form or nature. You know, those things that God does create and direct towards their end, like I've been saying all along. So no, get out of your materialist mindset, creationists, when it says that God creates all these kinds and according to this kind. I think this is him creating these natures, like I've been saying all along. All right. So I've let the creationist uh, drive the discussion so far by dealing with their arguments in favor. Let's switch gears a little bit and see what, ev what evolution has to say, what arguments they have in favor of evolution having happened. Here are a couple huge pieces of evidence. One, the discovery of DNA. Imagine for a moment that there were some people arguing about whether the Windows operating system evolved, whether it started at an early form and then slowly layers of code were added to it and changed and, and features were added such that it became more complex, or whether these were all independently created. Now, if you never saw the code, you didn't actually know the history for certain, if you just played with these different operating systems, you might not actually know. Maybe, maybe that'd be a pretty good question, right? But you know what would really change the game? It would really change the game is if you, uh, if you looked at the source code and you found that what was in Windows 95 was then in Windows 98, the same code, and then with a few changes. And then you saw that that went into, say, what was it, Windows 2000, Windows XP, whatever it was. I use Linux. I don't care. Um, and then if you saw that the code was being carried over, changed, and mutated, you would see this common descent. You would see the common ancestry. You would watch as it slowly evolved, and it would be recorded in the source code. In fact, if you looked at, say, the mainframe version, uh, different things which are based off uh, the awful Windows operating system for phones, which I don't think it's, exists anymore, you would see how these had to adapt to different environments and you'd be able to draw out a little tree of life. This would be definitive. Well, we do have the source code for life. It's called DNA. We can sequence genomes. And guess what we find? It supports evolution. And I think this is, if this was the only... Um, line of evidence that we had from DNA, it would be decisive. But that's not all we have. We also have the, fo the fossil record. And by the way, the fossil record is entirely falsifiable. If the creationists could find one, just one, complex and out-of-place fossil in all of the world, in all of history, just one, find one 
early human in the stomach of a T-Rex, and you will have turned all of evolutionary history on its head. But this never, I repeat, never happens. We do not find later stage life with earlier stage life because they were separated by billions of years. Now, I've heard arguments that the flood segregated animals and, strangely, plants in this way, and I just find this not terribly worth even addressing. I don't think that that's what happened. All right, um, there are abnormalities in the fossil record, but they typically go the other way. For instance, a while ago, there was a thought-to-be-extinct fish found off of the coast of Africa. Now, we thought this had been, uh, this had been extinct for, I think, uh, 250 or 350 million years, and yet a fisherman draws it up. Does this pr- disprove the fossil record? No. So that is not a complex later stage life form found in an earlier strata. That is a simpler, less complex organism found today. All that means is that, cool, the fish survived. All right. That is literally the reverse of what would disprove evolution. Evolution would be disproved by finding a complex organism like, say, a parrot amongst, um, I don't know, the, uh, the early unicell history of, of life in the past, right? That would, that would blow apart the theory. And we don't have that. So the fossil record is consistent with a movement from simple to complex, from uh, less diverse to more diversity. So I've spent most of this time talking about evolution. There's also the associated claim that this is young Earth evolution, that the Earth is indeed young. But this is also tragically false. Now, I talked about that asymmetry earlier, where if the creationist can find one of these types of uh, displaced fossils, well, it really throws a monkey wrench into everything. However, there's another asymmetry. If the evolutionist, or let's say just the older theorist, can find a single rock, a single rock, which is over the uh, the young age of the earth of 6,000, 10,000, whatever, pick your age, uh, age of the earth, if they can find a single example of this, which is older than that, well, then they've proved indeed the, the earth and the universe is indeed older. So can we find even a single rock that is, for certain, older than the young Earth time frame? Yeah, yeah, we we do that all the time. So we have a variety of ways to do this. One is uh, we have clocks, um, and some of these are uh, uranium-lead dating clocks. Uh, uh, let's see, potassium-argon, uh, uranium-thorium, um, uh fission track dating method clocks, uh, uh, chlorine 36. We we have many different dating methods. And uh, I think by one count, we have like 50 of them or something crazy. So we have many different clocks and these clocks are radioactive. So they spit out these these, uh, little particles uh, according to these half-lifes. And we can see the proportion of one element as it decays into another element. And we can get an idea, based on the decay rate, how old this is. And we can check these rates against historical dates. And we can use shorter clocks to calibrate longer ones. For instance, let's say carbon dating of some type uh, can uh, be calibrated using uh, food inside of a 5,000-year-old pyramid. 
And then we can calibrate the, uh, the next clock. I don't know what the next most sensitive clock would be based on the carbon. And then we could use that to calibrate the next, etc., etc. Well, then we have a variety of different measures, ones which can measure very, very far, far out. That's what we do. All right. Um, so all young earth creationists uh, can, all young earth creationists can say that this is ironclad evidence, and yet scripture trumps it. But I think you need to be careful with that. And, you know, we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, the young earth creationist would have to show why this would be wrong, and I don't think that they have. They've said, well, maybe it could be that just the, uh, the, the decay rates have changed, but there's no reason to say that they have changed. Certainly not that all of them have changed, and that they have changed so much that they are several orders of magnitude wrong, even though we have calibrated many of them to known historical dates. This type of objection is just functionally equivalent to saying, yeah, but what if not? No, we, we have no reason to see that. Further, uh, we also have a, uh, an ability to estimate what the decay rate is prior to any type of empirical um, observation. In the age of atomic research, uh, new elements were being fused together in the lab. And based on uh, the number of protons, neutrons, the different forces inside the atom, before these elements even existed, they were able to estimate what their half-lives would be. And guess what? These formulas, they track with our historical and empirical understanding of the function of these clocks. Those are multiple lines of converging evidence, all which are orders of magnitude over what a young earth would, would say. This is conclusive evidence of an old earth. It's not the only evidence we have. We also have uh, the fact that we can see stars that are millions of light years away. Did you catch what I said? Millions of light years away. So they had to have been putting out light for millions of years. You would have to have been around for millions of years in order to see them, in order for the, the time enough to pass for the light to reach us because they're millions of light years away. Now, some creationists say that, well, fine, whatever, the light of the stars was created en route. But some of these have actually burned out by now. So did God create light en route from a star that never existed? Now, others say, well, maybe it's because the universe was stretched out in this way, and I guess you could make that possible. But if you really want a, a view which is consistent with the science and does rely on the stretching out based on cosmic background radiation, well, then I will say that a, a Gerard, a Gerard a, a Schrodinger or something, uh, he writes uh, Genesis and the Big Bang and the Science of God. Go read those. That is a great way to actually combine this. He shows that there's a time dilation and that if you set the clock at the point of um, let there be light, which is the point of uh, the uh, photons no longer being confined, um, then, you know what? Go read the books, guys. I'm not going to give you a full summary. That is, uh, that is cool stuff. But um, as far as an old Earth from our point in time as measuring back, uh, this is absolutely consistent with the idea that we have, a, uh, we have clocks on the Earth which are set 
and we match what we know from a old Earth, from light coming from the stars. We have uh, the movement of tectonics plates that would have taken a very long time. We have the erosion factors of mountains, which are only explained by a very, very, very long time, far over what the young Earth creationists would have. We have the differentiation of species geographically. Oh, goodness. I'm sure I'm forgetting a number of lines of evidence. But the point is, I think this is a rock-solid case for an old Earth. So if you are a young earth creationist um, and, uh, and you're trying to argue that this is wrong, I would just suggest that you don't act like you're using dispassionate science, but instead just own the fact that it's because of theological convictions. And if it were true that you had absolute iron-tight theological reasons why the earth had to be young, well then, yeah, maybe we did somehow misunderstand science. Maybe there was some type of miracle that happened. Maybe there was some action of God that only made it look old. Maybe, but that's what we need to get into next. What evidence actually gets primacy? So the creationists would say um, that the... Uh, that the concept of evolution, etc., is flawed because it contradicts scripture. Scripture is 100% reliable and our science is not. Ergo, let's go with scripture. Now, scripture is 100% true, but we need to know in what sense it's speaking. Great. You are 100% sure that scripture is correct, but you are, are you 100% infallible in your interpretation of it? The Bible has many different genres. Are you 100% sure you correctly know which is which? What makes us think that the early chapters of Genesis are absolutely literal in the precise sense that you think it? How could we be 100% sure of understanding the proper sense of Scripture? Should we use Scripture to do that? Well, that's circular. So we need something outside of Scripture, ultimately rooted in truth itself, to finally anchor us in our reading of Scripture. And for Catholics, we have a magisterium that is preserved from error by God, established by Christ, and can make definitive statements regarding our faith. Oh yeah, in that magisterium, it permits evolution and an old earth. So if you're Catholic, you're not obligated by the faith to take a stance on either side. You're permitted to accept an old earth, to, permit, to accept evolution, or to accept young earth. So allow the science to decide because the magisterium has said that it doesn't force you to one opinion or another theologically. And if you're not Catholic, well, then you don't have a 100% certain means and no claim that you have a 100% certain means of knowing if you're interpreting a given text correctly. So the options are not 100% certain scriptural understanding versus a scientific theory. That's not the option at all. So what is true in the Genesis uh, story of creation? Now, here comes the analogy that I've used a thousand times. The tortoise and the hare. This goes all the way back to Aesop's fables. And Aesop was around 2,500 years ago. He knew Aristotle. So once again, the creationist has a, uh, a much more uh, similar view to the atheistic evolutionist because they only value the Genesis narrative in a scientistic and literalistic reductionist way. But to give the tortoise and the hare example, do we care that there was a uh, tortoise that had an 
a uh, average velocity that was faster than a given hair? Is that why this story was passed all the way uh, from 2,500 years ago to today, such that you know what I mean when I talk about the story of the tortoise and the hare? No, we don't read this in a literalistic, scientistic, reductionist way. We understand that this says something very true about reality, something applicable to all sorts of different areas of life, something that we need to understand and we should understand. It gives us a lens for viewing the world. It's true, and it's truer than something which is simply literal, the relative velocities of a tortoise and a hare. So, I would suggest that not all of Genesis is like this, but a lot of the early chapters are. They have deep theological, philosophical, and moral understanding, which goes over and above whatever the literalistic view would be. Stories like the flood narrative seem to be targeting for destruction certain false conceptions of God, and they co-opt certain popular stories at the time, and they twist them away from their lies and they point them back towards the truth of God. Now, I can already hear a young earth creationist saying somewhere, you're letting science drive our interpretation of scripture. You're retreating in the face of these terrible evolutionists. No. You see, in the Jewish tradition, it was common to interpret Genesis metaphorically in a variety of ways. Moses Maimonides did this, and he's commonly viewed as the greatest Jewish commentator of all time. I think it'd be very difficult to claim that he was either influenced by evolutionary science, which was about 700 years away from existing, or that he represents a break from authentic Jewish thought, since he is, by most admissions, the greatest Jewish thinker. So I'm quoting from a Jewish scholar, in part because many of my friends who are young earth creationists also have conspiracy theories about the Catholic Church. So, guys, this guy is not Catholic. He's pre-evolution, and he is in line with Jewish thought, which uh, uh, has been talking about Genesis for, for a while now. I think we can agree. So here we go. Maimonides lays down a few principles, and we're going to be reading a big quote from him. I don't think we've actually quoted from my main man, Maimonides, yet, though Thomas Aquinas does all the time, I'll point out. All right, so he's dealing with a scientific issue of his time. So let's just watch what he does to uh, what he does to reconcile this. Here we go, Maimonides. We do not reject the eternity of the universe because certain passages in Scripture confirm creation, for such passages are not more numerous than those in which God is represented as a corporal being, nor is it impossible or difficult to find for them a suitable interpretation. We might have explained them in the same manner as we did in respect to the incorporally, incorpor, oh wow, incorporality, how come I can't say that, of God. God doesn't have a body. There you go. We should perhaps have an easier task in showing that the scriptural passages referred to are in harmony with the theory of the internality of the universe if we accepted the latter, then we had in explaining the anthropomorphisms in the Bible when we rejected the idea that God has a body. For two reasons, however, we have not done so, and we have accepted the eternality of the universe. First, the incorporality of God has been demonstrated by proof. 
those passages in the Bible, which in their literal sense contain statements that can be refuted by such proofs, must and can be interpreted otherwise. But the eternity of the universe has not been proved. The mere argument in favor of a certain theory is not sufficient is not a sufficient reason for rejecting the literal meaning of a biblical text and explaining it figuratively, when the opposite theory can be supported by an equally good argument. Second, our belief in the incorporeality of God is not contrary to any of the fundamental principles of our religion. It is not contrary to the words of any prophet. Only ignorant people believe that it is contrary to the teaching of Scripture. But we have shown that this is not the case. On the contrary, Scripture teaches the incorporeality of God. If we were to accept the eternity of the universe as taught by Aristotle, that everything in the universe is the result of fixed laws, that nature does not change, and that there is nothing supernatural, well, we should necessarily be in opposition to the foundation of our religion. We should disbelieve all miracles and signs from Scripture, and certainly reject all hopes and fears derived from Scripture, unless the miracles are also explained figuratively. The allegorists amongst the Mohammedans have done this, and they have thereby arrived at absurd conclusions. If, however, we accepted the eternality of the universe in accordance with the second of the theories which we have expounded above, and assumed with Plato that the heavens are likewise transient, we should not be in opposition to the fundamental principles of our religion. This theory would not imply the rejection of miracles, but, on the contrary, would admit them as possible. The scriptural text might have been explained accordingly, and many expressions might have been found in the Bible and in other writings that would confirm and support this theory. But there is no necessity for this expedient as long as the theory has not been proved. As there is no proof sufficient to convince us, this theory need not be taken into consideration, nor the other one. We take the text of the Bible literally and say that it teaches us truth which we can prove, and the miracles are evidence for the correctness of our view. Look how he draws a distinction between scientific claims that contradict the core of religion like there's no such thing as a supernatural or miracles can't happen, versus things that could be understood in harmony. For instance, the universe being eternal. Maimonides uses reason to understand scripture and vice versa. The two work in harmony, not in opposition. Much of the unique Protestant rejection of the power of philosophy seems to be from the Calvinist notion of total depravity, that our minds are so darkened by sin that our reason is hamstrung. That, But it's darkened, it's not destroyed, it's damaged, it's not deleted. Maimonides offers an excellent example of a time when we do use reason to reinterpret the clear reading of Scripture, and we arrive at a better, not a conceited or a watered-down understanding. He points out the times where God is spoken of with material parts, like when it says that the right hand of God does something, or when he's assigned emotions, um, or when he's assigned a body in general, such that uh, his backside was seen by Moses, right? The other Moses. We believe that God is spirit. That's what John chapter 5 tells us. And Maimonides didn't have the New Testament, of course, being a Jew and whatnot. But he arrives at this idea that, no, of course, God is spirit from reason. And then 
the scripture is more accurate. His understanding of it is more accurate because reason and scripture worked together here. And he goes against the literal reading that God has a right hand and thus a body because of what he knows by reason. And this does not contradict the core of his faith, the idea of miracles, the idea of the supernatural, the idea of God, not at all. If it did, then I'm sorry. The literal just has to take precedent. And here's an example of this with the eternality of the universe. There are literal statements which seem that the universe had a beginning, but he says it's not core to our faith. Therefore, we can rely on reason to see if we have a good reason. He concludes that there's not a strong enough scientific or philosophical case, so he defaults to the clear reading of Scripture. Now, in the case of evolution, we have very clear scientific evidence. We have very clear reasons from Scripture to show that the earth is old and evolution indeed happened. So even if there was a literal part of Scripture that says, no, this is not it, and there kind of is, right? You know, early parts of Genesis seem to speak to that. We can do the Maimonides test. Does this assault the core of our religion? No, it actually doesn't. And the Magisterium of the Catholic Church doesn't think it does either. So what should we do? We should adjudicate with the best science we know in light of the fact that um, the Scripture does not come down on this in a way that we must, um, must accept in a literal way. And now we can use what we know from reason and what we know from science to inform our reading of Scripture. It can work both ways, and that's fine. We're rational creatures. God made us that way. So, all right, uh, that was a bit of a tangent, in a way, um, talking about that. But uh, let, let's hit another tangent. JP2 says, and I have a, a quote here, Faith and reason are two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth. And God has placed in the human heart a desire to know the truth. In a word, to know himself. And by knowing and loving God, men and women may come to the fullness of truth about themselves. To make a Benedict and uh, Fides a Ratio mashup from memory, faith purifies reason of presumption and instead elevates and exalts it. And reason purifies faith of superstition and false dogmatism. I think that we need both. Of course we need both, and we have episodes about faith in a defense of faith and reason in a defense of reason. Both of these are necessary. Both of these work um, together. We ought not just only take the things of our faith, like Scripture, and then bully reason into coming to a conclusion. I think that's what the creationist says. And likewise, we shouldn't take the things that we know from reason and try to bully Scripture. I think we've presented in a variety of ways um, how to bring these things into a correct synthesis. All right. So in the case of the literal Genesis account, I think that reason is breaking us from a false dogmatism. And dare I say it, a superstition. And good, that's what reason's for. And what's faith doing? It's doing many things. It's talking about how God uh, created natures, how he uh, creates a, a pairing between the state of nature and the, the, the nature of things which are embedded in nature. Uh, go back to the idea of the electron and the proton as this causal pair, which allows for all sorts of life to exist. That's because God imbued these with natures, with certain actualities and potentialities. That's what our, our 
faith can tell us that God is creator and creator of this good universe. All right. So maybe your problem isn't that scripture says these things, but instead that the fathers seem to support young earth creationism. Is that true? Did most of the early church fathers support young earth creationists? Well, I mean, maybe so, sure. But why does that matter? What, what would that mean? They were also almost unanimously geocentrists. Actually, I think unanimously. They believed uh, that, that uh, sickness came from bad air or imbalanced humors. They disbelieved universally in germ theory. The church infallibly teaches on matters of, say it with me now, faith and morals. So um, go back to the old faith episode and listen to that one. Okay, you're back. Awesome. Does that mean that revelation has nothing to do with science? No, of course we can use revelation to talk about science. I did that in the alien episode recently, and I talked about how stuff from the magisterium, from tradition and scripture can inform that scientific question. All the fathers denied germ theory, but who cares? We can see germs in a microscope. Germs are not an article of faith or morals. All the fathers were geocentrists. Um, but is that really a matter of faith? No, not really. No, that's something for science to, to settle where exactly the earth is, uh, is placed in our universe. Uh, they were operating off of an old Aristotelian paradigm whereby they thought that the heavens were a lighter substance, the earth, something which tended towards the center of the earth, such that it wouldn't make sense for... Uh, uh, something other than geocentrism. And uh, it did progress from there, but still, uh, these are scientific questions, not faith and morals. Is the earth old or young? Well, even if the fathers thought it was young, for whatever reasons, I would say that this is a question for geologists. Did plants and animals and the like evolve? Well, that sounds like a biological question. Now, some might recoil that I'm sorting things into these categories. Isn't theology queen of the sciences, you may ask? Well, yes. But if your idea of a king or queen in rulership means steamrolling over lesser disciplines or imposing from the top-down uniformity of thought from one discipline, then you're not talking about a queen. You're talking about a tyrant. You're talking about a dictator. Queen of the sciences ought to invoke the Catholic idea of subsidiarity. And that idea, um, which, by the way, is a doctrine that you must believe, that idea says that things ought to be dealt with at the lower level before they're moved to a higher. A doctrine of the faith, I, I may repeat. So the question when it comes to a geologist is, uh, is this rock old or young? And now we have to ask, can he actually weigh in on this? Well, yes, of course he can. He can tell us that rocks are old. And if we go to a biologist, come to the science of biology, we say, did these species evolve or not? Is that something biologists can tell us? Well, yes, it is, of course. So just squashing this inquiry with tyranny from a theological height, that violates subsidiarity. We do believe that these sciences can give us true information. We don't have to go up to a higher science. Maimonides sees the science of his time was not able to settle whether the universe was infinite or finite. So what did he do next? Well, he pushed it up to the higher court. It was settled by scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
So on one extreme, we have the anarchy of the science. We have no ruling and cohering vision of reality. But on the other hand, we have a tyranny of the sciences. But the Catholic vision is subsidiarity. It's unity and diversity, an appreciation of the unique contributions of each science, and a trust that truth does not contradict truth, irrespective of its source, because all truth is ultimately from God. All right, let's wrap it up there. I think we have some good principles in place. Um, Yeah, there's so many more questions I could explore in this, Um, and if I, I... taught you something here that's that's spectacular i'm very happy if there's things which i didn't address which you wish i did email me at the gordian not 101 at gmail.com with uh, uh anything uh comments questions questions for the mailbag um uh, hate mail you name it i just like emails um, our friend John DeRosa, who wrote a smashingly good paper on Adam and Eve, may be coming, time permitting, onto the show to talk about that because that's something that we left out of this. What exactly do we do, we do with the story of the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve? He has some really cool ways to uh, harmonize this with uh, faith and reason. So that's going to be a wonderful episode, guaranteed. We just need to make sure that we can find the time for that on both sides. Um, I will remind you at this point, please share this with your friends. Uh, we always appreciate new people, new listeners coming in. Um, we love interaction with the people who listen and we always, uh, like to hear that there are new listeners adding on. And also if you do me a favor and put a review on whatever platform you're listening at, uh, that would be awesome. Um, yeah, great. Well, thanks for listening and I hope you join me next time as well. God bless.